Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. This is the sound of tar. instrument played in Iran and parts of the Caucasus like Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. It's uh, one of the major instruments of Persian classical music. It has a two-bowl body almost like the number eight. The lower bowl is larger than the upper one. The neck is narrow and long, about two and a half feet. It has six strings and it's played with a brass pick. I don't play very well. But I used to be better. I started playing the tar rather late when I was already in college. Uh, a freshman or a sophomore, I don't remember the exact days. Um, I was also a literary translator. I worked on Ambrose Bierce and later on um, Richard Brodigan and Samuel Beckett. Uh, music was great, like literature. I would sit on my chair and pick up my instrument to start practicing. I would forget everything. When I stopped, I would look at the clock and hours had passed. But I could still, I felt like I could still go on. It was around the same time that I started writing my own short stories too. And like music, writing and translation ended up being this, this timeless space where I would happily lose myself in. Um, for about three years, I practiced the tar more and more until I was, I was playing too good for my cheap instrument. Um, I felt like I had, I'd come to a fork where I had to decide between literature and music. If I hoped to be even, even a half-decent musician, I felt like I had to put in upward of six hours of practice every day, perhaps even more. Also, I needed a, a good instrument, and at that time I didn't have the money. 
So I asked myself, do I want to be a musician or a writer? It was a difficult decision for me, but I finally um, answered myself. Uh, I wanted to be a writer, so I, I quit playing guitar. Now, about 15 years later, uh, my first novel, The Immortals of Tehran, is out in English. Um, it's not about music, but my old instrument is in it. So I wanted to read a little bit, a, sh a very short excerpt from the novel where the tar appears for the first time. What you need to know about this scene is, uh, is that Ahmad is the main character of the novel and uh, this is his wedding day. We're in an orchard where the ceremony is celebrated. It's fall, the trees are leafless. The main characters in this scene are Ahmad and Homa, the groom and the bride, Khan, Ahmad's grandfather, and great uncle, uh, Homa's mother's uncle. Also, Ahmad is not capable of speaking. He has lost his voice from, the, from a very young age. Music slipped out of vibrating strings and throbbing percussive skin from under restless picks and hands. Great uncle reached into his breast pocket and threw a fistful of bills into the air, then a second. Children dived to collect the money from under the stomping feet. Seeing this, Khan left the circle and strode away from the celebration. Outside, he motioned for the chauffeur to open the trunk of the white jaguar. Back at the dance, the crowd split open to let in Khan and his driver boy who carried two sacks under his arms. Khan dug his hand into one and the bills flew into the air. Children ran around trying to catch them as they spun like raining pinwheels. The great uncle emptied his pockets and then motioned at Colonel Deldar for more. As the evening proceeded, more nimble-fingered musicians performed. The cool fall breeze could not dry sweat off the dancing bodies. Until the last one dropped down panting, Khan and great uncle showered bills on the dancers. So much money was dispersed that after the wedding was over and the last of the guests had left, the owner of the orchard spent a sunset, a sunset to sundown excavating bills from under mud and dirt. The last player of the night was Maestro Shahnaz. After the dinner tables were cleared, a humble wooden chair was placed for him in the middle of the open space. The night was calm except for the murmur of those outside and the chatter of those inside and the chirping of the creatures of the night. The maestro approached his chair with slow, calm steps and sat himself, eyes cast down. He crossed his legs and balanced his tar on his thigh. A silence fell over the wedding as he turned the pick in his hand and took a deep breath, his head bent toward his instrument. With the first strum of the pick on the strings, the dead branches of the trees turned soft, and before the end of the overture, green shoots had sprouted on them. A few scales into the rhythmic piece, blossoms opened on the leafless trees. The music was almost visible, floating in the breeze, weaving in and out of the plum trees, billowing the curtains into the house, scaling up the women's legs and wafting around their bosoms. Suddenly, Happy cries rose from the bride and groom's room. 
The bride's dress had bloomed. Homa's mother kept picking the blossoms from the veil so she could see. Ahmad smiled at Homa and got up from beside her to look at the maestro through the window. The orchard was carpeted with orange and plum blossoms that grew and fell from the trees. A pinkish-white petal sat on the maestro's bald head. We'll be happy together, Homa whispered in Ahmad's ear when he sat back by her. Ahmad took her hand and gave it a gentle but firm squeeze. This is a sign. After the wedding, the newlyweds boarded the automobile that Mohammad Reza had rented for the wedding ride. Parked right outside of the orchard, the Jaguar too, like all the other cars, had grown little flowers on its handles, trunk and hood. Sitting in the back seat, Ahmad and Homa circled the streets of the city in the mirth of their unity. Years later, after the revolution and the eight-year war had already become history, when Ahmad walked the streets of the megalopolis of Tehran and saw how people decorated their wedding cars by tapping gladioli to the hoods, trunk, and door handles, he felt an urge to write on a piece of paper and show the person nearest him, that's the doing of Maestro Shanaz. You should have seen the orchard that night. The Immortals of Tehran is a novel about uh, about a family. This family is uh, supposedly under some age-old curse. The way the curse works is that every other male member of the family dies young, while the other lives as a forever. Ahmad is, is one of these apparent immortals. We follow his life from age 10 during World War II when the Anglo-Russian forces uh, invade and occupy Iran up to the 1979 Iranian Revolution and, uh, and on to when he's an old man. Like the history of Iran in that period, Ahmad's life is, is tumultuous. Um, he loses his voice early in the novel uh, but grows up to be a, a very renowned radical poet. Um, then he becomes interested in, in politics and becomes the youngest member of the parliament he has two daughters, uh, two talented girls. The novel also uh, explores the possibility that, that cats are behind whatever happens in, in contemporary Iran, all the turmoil and political unrest. The novel begins with Ahmad's sister's wedding day in Tajrish. Tajrish was a village just north of Tehran. After years passed and Tehran started growing larger and larger, Tajrish ended up to be just one neighborhood of the of the big city. Tehran is located at the at the foot of mountains. The Alborz mountain range runs along the north edge of the city. Being to the north of Tehran, Tajrish is generally more mountainous than the rest of the city. In the beginning chapters of the novel, we're we're in the village in Tajrish. Um, the family lives in an apple orchard. Ahmad's grandfather, Khan, is a, is a wealthy owner of multiple orchards, um, and they live in one of these. There's also a huge plane tree in the orchard, and this tree becomes uh, iconic in the novel. That's what you actually see on the cover of the, uh, of the book. The family soon has to, has to leave their home and move to the capital because of some, something that happens in the village. Um, and the rest of the novel happens in Tehran. 
I think now I'll read some a few pages from the beginning of the novel, uh, so you have an idea how it starts. Ahmad was a ten-year-old boy when he was a ten-year-old boy. Never would he have thought, as he played tag with his childhood friends in the village of Tajrish, that he would one day watch his best friend's father bite off a dead cat's ear. Ahmad could not have foreseen that he would one day work in a forge, pounding white-hot iron with a heavy hammer. His childhood imagination could never have pictured the trains that sped through tunnels under the big city in which one grasped for a hanging strap. In short, Ahmad Torkashvand could not have fathomed that the fog that shrouded the village that early summer morning would change the course of their history. On Ahmad's sister's wedding day, the morning fog descended the mountains as if some god had summoned it from the far seas. Many in the village had been in preparation since the marriage was announced by Ahmad's father one month before. On the day of the fog, as it would later be called by those who decided to stay, a knocking woke Ahmad from his sleep. The sound traveled jerky and anxious from the front door across the yard, into the house, along the hallway, and into Ahmad's bedroom. For a few seconds, he thought he had heard the rap in his dreams. His eyes were closing again when the repeated pounding yanked him out of sleep. He sat up remembering his sister's wedding. His mother had told him the night before that she would leave for the orchard with the women from the neighboring houses shortly after dawn to prepare for the ceremony. She had asked him to let the chickens out of the coop, scatter some feed, and not forget to get them back in before leaving for the orchard. That was his only chore for the morning. The house was quiet. Mom! Ahmad called out toward his closed door. He sprang up from his sleeping pad on the floor to look out the window. Behind the white lace curtain, a fog had fallen so dense he could barely make out anything in the courtyard. With its chain-link fence lost in white, the coop was no more than the ghost of a large cage with blurry wooden posts. Ahmad heard the nervous knocking again, and this time Salman's voice came with it. Ahmad! Ahmad was not unfamiliar with Salman's banging on the door, which often meant playtime out in the dirt alleys or outside the village on the mountain trails, shooting pebbles at sparrows with slingshots. But his friend had never come so early in the morning when it was time to prepare fresh meat for the customers and he had to lend a hand at the butchery. In response to Salman's shout, the rooster, Ahmad's favorite in the coop, cried out a hoarse, Coming! Ahmad shouted as he stepped onto the wide veranda that overlooked the courtyard. The fog was the thickest Ahmad had ever walked into. If he had not already known where the flower beds, the coop, and the cauldrons were, he would have lost his way in the limbo of the large yard. Ahmad, hurry! It's your father! Suddenly the fox seeped into Ahmad's chest. From the pile of shoes and slippers, he threw on the first pair he could find, ran down the four steps into the courtyard, and sprinted to the front door. Salman was restlessly shifting his wake from one foot to the other. Worry shot from his eyes. Without a word, he started running. Ahmad ran after him along alleys in which fog flowed like a river toward a white sea.
In front of him, Salman was a ghost, only half visible, partially dissolved. Ahmad had to exert himself to catch up with his swift-footed friend, lest the fog eat him altogether. He kicked off his slippers. The only sounds were their steps on their ground and their panting. The rest of the world had gone. Ahmad tried to think what might have happened to his father. He followed Salman around a corner and came to the open area in front of the mosque where a murmuring crowd had gathered. The people close to the entrance were more visible while the ones on the periphery blended into white. Here comes his son, someone shouted. The people Ahmad could see turned their heads toward him as the crowd parted to let him through. Both metal doors of the mosque were flung open. Usually only one door was used. Surrounded by the onlookers and standing taller than them all, Mullah Ali was waiting close to the door. It was the first time Ahmad had seen the Mullah without his white turban. The man's sparse gray hair was in disarray. Inside the mosque, a few men stood facing a small door in the corridor that opened into the stairwell, stairwell inside the minaret. The turquoise tiles of the minaret faded into the milky haze before Ahmad could see what was happening up at the crown. Come down, Nasser, Nemat the barber shouted up. Don't do this to the house of God. Ahmad felt a hole open in his stomach down which his insides tumbled in an endless fall. It was his father Nemat was calling. The muffled sound of metal hitting something non-metal was the only reply from the top of the minaret. Step back! Step back! shouted one of the men. Some ran out and others dashed further into the mosque before something rumbled in the minaret and large chunks of brick shot out of the stairwell at the bottom. A flower pot broke. Ahmad looked around at the faces he saw every day, the grocer, the bathhouse keeper, Mohammed the carpenter, the baker, Salman's father, Mashakbar, a short man with a big stomach, and everyone else. It was hard to make out the faces of the women who were sitting, mostly in white chadors camouflaged by the fog, on the rooftops witnessing the incident. He could not tell if his mother was among them. Why would she be watching and not doing anything? Salman's father limped over to him and rested a hand on his shoulder. What's my father doing, Mashakbar? Ahmad asked, but before Mashakbar could answer, there was a gunshot from the top of the minaret, a shot into the fog. Everyone looked up in sudden agitation, although nothing could be seen. Ahmad was afraid. A second shot was fired. Salman covered his ears. Ahmad, too, put his hands on his ears and took shelter behind Mashakbar. Mullah Ali combed his black and white beard with his long, bony fingers and looked up at the top of the minaret. Nasser Khan, come down, he shouted. There are no Russians in the sky. Ahmad kept his ears covered. There was another gunshot and more brick came rolling down the spiral stairwell of the minaret. Nasser Khan, shouted Mullah Ali. Your son's here. Can you hear me? Ahmad is here. I usually trace the genesis of the novel back to one day when I was uh, back in Iran walking on a sidewalk and uh, saw a cat coming toward me. 
I need to explain that, that street cats are, are very common sights in Tehran. Uh, you, you may see them anywhere. Um, they rip open trash bags, they walk on walls, under cars, in ditches, in parks. But they're usually scared of people. They'll run away if you get too close to them. They eye you up, ready to dash away if they decide that you're up to something funny. But this one cat walked toward me and, and it wasn't even looking at me. No, no hesitation, no rush, just, just walking. It looked to me as if, as if the cat saw itself as entitled to the sidewalk as me. In my head, the cat seemed to be making the statement that we, we are both equal. We're both equal citizens of, uh, of Tehran, this country, and we have, we have similar, we, we have the same rights. And the thought kind of snowballed in my head and, uh, and I wondered, and, and I thought to myself, like, what if, what if the, these cats are actually up to something? Maybe they're not just wandering the streets, but they're busy with their own clandestine plots to wreak havoc. Uh, then from there, I thought, well, what if they've been at work for much longer than this? What if everything that happened in contemporary Iranian history was the doing of cats? So this was the, the main central image that I started with uh, when I started writing this novel in, 20, in 2013. And seven years later, The Immortals of Tehran came out in April of this year. So far, I've, I, I have talked mostly about the main character, um, Ahmad, but I wanted to talk a little bit about other characters too. This novel is not limited to Ahmad, obviously. The cast of characters is actually rather large, um, so much so that I thought I had to include a family tree in the book to help those who may need a refresher on the names and relationships of the of the characters. There are over over 30 characters on the family tree, and that's not everybody. The novel, as I envisioned it, is uh, is, is like it works like like a tapestry that that is made by different narrative threads, life stories of all these characters. Um, yes, we do have a we do have major and minor characters, and Ahmad is pretty much the protagonist. But the world of the novel is not supposed to revolve around one or a few of them. We have Puran, she's Ahmad's mother. She tries to keep the family together uh, through the many ups and downs that the family and, uh, and the country goes through. Khan is Ahmad's grandfather. Um, like I said before, he's the owner of multiple apple orchards. He's well off, he's powerful. Uh, he's kind of a patriarch of the family, if you will, for some time at least. Then he runs into some trouble with uh, with the village mullah, and uh, and later in the novel he tries to prove that what happened what happened in Iran is caused by the cats. Another major character is Aga, although they know him as Ahmad's great 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 grandfather, but that's just conjecture. Actually, nobody knows how old he really is. He lives inside that big plane tree in the, in the orchard that has a hollow trunk. 
Ahmad's daughters are daring and determined in pursuing what they want. Lala, the younger daughter, um, looks for and finds love in the midst of the revolution. Um, she's ambitious and full of a youthful energy. The, these are just like some of the major characters in the novel. There's just a little bit about them. The collective lives of these characters create that tapestry that is this novel. One of the difficulties of, of writing The Immortals was the way I had to keep myself actually from going too deep into, into the lives of these like, quote-unquote minor characters. Um, they were all very interesting to me and I wanted to spend more and more time exploring their stories. Um, but then I had to ask myself, whose story is the novel telling? Uh, who's the main character? How long can I spend with, with these other characters' narratives uh, and uh, still leave some time and space for the, for the protagonist to remain a protagonist? Of course, there are narrative techniques that you could use to keep the spotlight on the main character, but that was not the project I was interested in. Um, one principal idea behind this novel was that each of these characters can have their their own novel. Each one of them could be a protagonist. They are heroes and heroines of their, their own lives and their lives are interesting and worth telling. Uh, while that is true, it's, it's hard to pull this off in fiction, uh, at least for me. The question for me remained how to keep Ahmad as the main character but also give others enough stage time to make this case that this is not necessarily a novel with one hero. It's not about one person. It's about this, this collective of, of people. And I think thematically, this approach may be relevant to the idea of, of the revolution as a phenomenon that's, that, that is necessarily the result of collective action. Because I was interested in, uh, in the lives of all of these characters, it was important for transitions to be as smooth as, as could be. I needed to get into and out of uh, various narrative threads very often, and I had to have organic transitions that wouldn't draw too much attention to these shifting of gears. I think it makes sense for me to read one last passage that hopefully shows how I try to handle um, some of these transitions that, that I was talking about. Also, I, I want to give some a, like a glimpse into some other parts of Ahmad's life and, and mention some other characters as well. Um, so this section that I am going to read is, is when Ahmad and Homa's first daughter was born. The characters here that, that you need to know about are Great Uncle and Colonel Dildar uh, from the wedding excerpt before. They're briefly mentioned here, and also Ahmad's mother, Puran. We get a short scene with Salman. As I'm sure you figured from the previous excerpt that I read, Salman is uh, Ahmad's childhood friend. They grow up together, but uh, at some point their paths diverge. Um, Salman joins uh, some leftist organizations and at this point in the novel uh, Salman is a fugitive and the Shah's intelligence system is after him. We also have Khan here, Ahmad's grandfather, who like I said uh, is trying to figure out the cats. 
in the past, before this excerpt, he has asked Majid to help him. Majid is Ahmad's nephew. And finally, we get Parveen, uh, who's Majid's younger sister, Ahmad's niece. At this point, Majid is a little boy at elementary school age. Homa gave birth to a girl. They called her Layla. She was a perfect mix of Homa and Ahmad and worked miracles. With her first cry, she expelled the silence from the two cursed rooms. Colonel Deldar ironed his uniform, polished his shoes, and welcomed his granddaughter while standing at attention with a stern face but welled-up eyes. When he saw the newborn, Homa's great-uncle abandoned his idea that a man had to earn what he possesses and gave Ahmad and Homa the present of a small house. Before the baby was a month old, Homa had rejected the landlady's offer of a decreased rent five times. When the moving day came, she had to talk her away from the door with the promise of weekly visits. What about no rent? The old woman whispered in Homa's ear as they hugged. The new house was not grand, but it was located in a calm neighborhood. The front door opened into a short corridor that led to a large living room. The kitchen could house a six-seat dining table and still leave Homa enough room to freely walk from the cabinet to the sink to the stove. The windows in the larger bedroom opened to a small but cozy yard. Homa bought all new pots and pans for the kitchen. She did not protest when her mother made the final decision about where the furniture would go, or when she shook her head and decreed that the curtains Puran had, had sewn for the new house would not go with the armchair in the living room. With the baby so little and fragile, Homa could not bring herself to lose the little of her mother's affection and interest that she had won after the birth of Layla. Puran was offended when she saw the orange curtains draping over the windows, but said nothing. The new house, the baby, and the constant visits from both her family and Ahmad's brought a healthy rose to Homa's cheeks within two months. Even the baby seemed to like the new house. Lying on her back in her bed, she gurgled and smiled at everyone. One late night, at a time when visitors were not expected, the sound of a stifled knock wound through the house. Ahmad opened the door to Salman, who slipped in silently and gently closed the latch bolt behind him. He had a present in his hands. Homa opened the box and took out a pair of small red girl shoes. The three of them sat with the tacit agreement not to discuss the fugitive in the living room. But the friend who slapped his thigh and laughed when Homa told him how, when Ahmad had his fedora on, Layla would cry in his arms, not recognizing him as her father, but broke into a hesitant smile when Ahmad took the hat off, only to pout again when the hat was back on. Homa brought fruit in a basket and put on the kettle to make tea. Ten minutes later, before the tea was quite ready yet, a short, high-pitched whistle sounded in the street. Salman sprang to his feet. Goodbye, ladybug, he said to the sleeping baby in the room. Grow up soon. With a confident calm in his movements, Salman rose from the crib, hugged Ahmad, 
congratulated Homa again and climbed the stairs up to the roof of the house. That was the first time Ahmad and Homa had Salman in their home and the last time anyone called Layla Ladybug. Khan was enamored with the baby. Even when no one was busy, he volunteered to look after her. He had a room built specifically for her on the roof. The baby and whoever looked after her would rest in those quarters, and when she grew up, she would know she always had her own private shelter no matter what. Parveen was so excited to have a cousin that when they told her she was too small to let the baby sleep on her legs, she offered to wash her dirty diapers. Parveen would climb up an empty tin bin to reach the clothesline. After she was done, and when no one was in sight, her brother Majid took the pins off and left the wet diapers to the mercy of the breeze. Later, Parveen picked the white pieces of cloth from the ground and branches of the trees, shook them, and washed them again. Do you want to play Count the Kitties? Majid asked Khan. Patting baby Layla on the back while rocking her in the garden, the old man tousled the, ba the boy's hair and sent him away. Some other time, maybe. Have you done your homework? Majid became a wanderer. When he found the opportunity, he would skip school and run to the movies to be mesmerized by the bright rectangle. Before he could gather the money for a ticket, he would squat for days on the sidewalk across from Cinema Royale and stare at the large painted poster above the entrance. In the foreground, the likeness of the lead actress revealed ample legs from under a mini skirt in a coquettish pose. In sizes proportionate to their fame, the mustachioed actors occupied the rest of the painting, touching the brim of their fedoras with a thumb or looking off into the distance. Street vendors sold food and drinks in front of the theater to the stream of people that came and went. When he ran out of patience, Majid waited for his father's loud snores at night, stole out of bed, tiptoed to the coat rack, and pinched coins out of his father's pants pockets. Amid the loud cries of men rising from their seats to swear at the characters they did not like and the crackling of roasted sunflower seeds breaking open between teeth, Majid sat rooted in a seat, hugging his school bag, swinging his short legs, enchanted by the black and white images that danced before him, the love scenes, the flirting scenes, scenes of cheating, scenes of fighting. For me, this novel is first and foremost about good fiction. And by that I mean I was, I was hoping to write a good novel more than anything else. Uh, a novel with relatable characters and a believable fictional world. But it's also about history and its constructedness. By parodying history, the novel hopes to ask questions about, about agents and writers of history. It's about the ownership of a narrative, about the making of the story of history. It's also about how people react to powers that, that try to regulate their lives, uh, be it turmoil and revolution or fate. For me, this novel is about fighting, it's about accepting, um, it's, it's about life. I would like to thank Skylight Books for giving me this opportunity 
I hope this pandemic crisis is soon behind us uh, so we feel safe again to get together in person. I would want to ask you to please consider supporting indie local bookstores. Let's help them survive these hard times. Thank you very much for listening. Order books, read books, and stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.